Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Today, we have a great guy, a repeat offender, Max Lugavere. He's a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods, Become Smarter, Happier, and More Productive While Protecting Your Brain for Life. And now we've got The Genius Life, where Max shares a lifestyle program for resetting the brain and body to its factory settings to help fight fatigue, anxiety, depression, and to optimize cognitive health for a longer and healthier life. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. For those that are curious, the previous episode where we talked about Max's first book, Genius Foods, that's episode 241. So what a great success you had with Genius Foods. What prompted you to move into Genius Life and do a part two? Well, thanks for that question. You know, I, Genius Foods I wrote to be the, nutri- the the de facto nutritional care manual to the human brain, which unfortunately doesn't come with an owner's manual, even though... You know, it's the most complicated, uh, complex, and and most elegant organ that we have. I mean, we we understand space more than we understand our own brains. But that being said, we're at this, I think, incredible turning point in science where we're starting to – a picture is starting to emerge in the medical literature in terms of how we might eat for better cognition, better mood, and better long-term brain health. But to be honest, nutrition is just one part of the story. It's a big part, but – um, we're now also learning so much about how our bodies respond to the environment around it, whether that is light, whether that is food, but from uh, not just the standpoint of what we're eating, but when we're eating, um, our relationship with nature, our relationship with thermal uh, changes in our in our ambient temperature, um, our relationship with uh, environmental toxins that the modern human is exposed to on a near chronic basis. Uh, so. I wanted to really write um, kind of like a sequel to Genius Foods, but not one of those sequels that you have to have watched the first movie to get the the sequel. This is a sequel where it's sort of like it's more Terminator 2 um, in the sense that if if it's the only book that you read, uh, it's going to do a lot in terms of optimizing your metabolic health, your body composition, and of course your brain health. Um, over the course of writing this book, uh, something, you know, exceedingly tragic happened in my life. My, um, your listeners might know, but if they don't, what, what inspired me to write genius foods was the fact that at a young age, my mom developed dementia. She was diagnosed with a neurodegenerative condition at the age of 58. And, uh, it was traumatic and painful to have to watch my mom, you know, a youthful and spirited woman, uh, descend into what dementia ultimately entails, which is, you know, problems with your cognition, with your memory. And my mom also had movement problems. But over the course of writing uh, The Genius Life, my mom actually was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And, um, you know, that was very difficult to have to uh, deal with, you know, the the diagnosis alone. But it was just a brutal disease and it, it took my mom's life. And so, on a one hand, it was it was both a blessing and a curse to be in the middle of the the year long period that I had to write the book when this diagnosis occurred because 
Um, I mean, on the one, it was a, it was a curse because it was, it obviously made the writing of the book a lot more difficult than the writing of genius foods. Uh, but on the other hand, it really got me to think about the world in a completely different way and broaden my horizons to encompass parts of our lives that could be optimized so as to minimize our risk for conditions beyond just dementia, which really was my focus at the beginning of my journey. And so given what we know about the relationship between diet and lifestyle and certain cancers, for example, um, or autoimmune conditions or heart disease. These are all sort of um, put under the microscope in my new book, The Genius Life. And so uh, I'm excited to get it out there. It was written during a pretty difficult period of my life, but I'm very proud of the work. And as you mentioned, it's a 360-degree lifestyle approach packed with simple tips that people can use in their day-to-day lives that are going to have big wins in terms of how they feel in the here and now, like in the moment, but then also in terms of, in terms of their health down the road as well. What a brutal thing to have to get a double whammy with your mom and a health issue. Um, I'm wondering with her cognitive ability abilities or disabilities at the time because of dementia, did it make it, it's going to sound weird. Did it make it any easier seemingly on her versus someone that might be more aware? Clearly not easy on you, but do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, not, you know, it it was strange. Um, my mom, this, we received the diagnosis during labor day of 2018 and I was actually in LA at the time on work and my mom was in New York and I was in LA probably for a total of four or five days. Um, and just before that I was in New York and I had taken my mom to a doctor's visit because her cognition had just, it was just, it had gotten so bad. And, we went to the to see the doctor to see if there's anything you know that may have changed or any just anything that we can do. I mean, you're grasping at straws with dementia, unfortunately, because um, I mean, any anybody who has any experience with dementia will will tell you that the drugs barely work, if at all. And most of the time, when you show up in these doctors' offices, what you get is little more than diagnose and adios. And so I went off to LA on my on my work trip. The doctor's visit, as I mentioned, was frustratingly unremarkable. Um, And then I got a call when I was in L.A. from my brothers that my mom seemingly overnight had turned yellow and they had rushed her to the emergency room. And what we ended up finding out was that 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 yellow hue that my mom had taken on was actually jaundice. And, you know, you you can turn yellow. There's like two major reasons why one would turn yellow. would take on an unusually yellow hue. One would be from if you consume, for example, too much beta carotene, but that doesn't affect the whites of your eyes. Jaundice actually is when your skin and the whites of your eyes become yellow. Um, and that's because bilirubin, which is a, a, the pigment that gives stool its color, actually backs up into the blood and seeps into your skin and eyes. And usually what happens is you have a gallstone and they remove it and your color goes back to normal. And, you know, that's, it's just an acute, um, you know, something that, that can be taken care of in the emergency room. But what they found in my mom's case after they performed the MRI was a tumor on the head of her pancreas. And, uh, they, what they did was they went in and they stented the bile duct, which allowed bilirubin to, you know, flow as normal which, you know, is include, which is then wrapped up into bile, which is then, you know, um, spilled into the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, but what was miraculous to get back to your question, um, was that as soon as after they stented the bile duct, we had 
a good, like I would say three days, maybe not that long, but it was, it was definitely a solid 24 hours where my mom's cognition seemingly had reverted by like five years almost. Um, and you know, I think the reason for this is, is that bilirubin and bile acids, they carry toxins actually out of your, you know, the liver is a major detox organ and it carries toxins that, um, that, you know, would otherwise become dangerous out. And that's, you know, like one of the major routes of detoxification for environmental, uh, and other toxins. And that's why, you know, going to the bathroom every day is so crucially important. And if that, um, if that port is essentially blocked, then it can cause these toxins to become built up in the blood and that no doubt affects the brain. Um, and so my theory on this is that, you know, during that, that acute setting in which my mom had this, this blockage in her bile duct causing bilirubin and all these other toxins to back up into her blood. I mean, that was essentially poisoning her brain. And so those, that doctor's visit that I had taken before I went to the trip to LA, I think that's what, that's, that was a reflection of what we hadn't yet known to be going on, you know, the, the case in my mom's GI tract. But once they stented that bile duct, then we had this amazing 24 hour to, to 48 hour window where my mom's cognition was almost back to normal. And we decided to, um, we weren't 100% sure what stage the cancer was in when we received that diagnosis. They, you know, unfortunately most of the time when pancreatic cancer is diagnosed, it's already too late. It's already at a point in, you know, at which the cancer has spread. And that's because there are no routine screening protocols for pancreatic cancer, unfortunately. Um, but nonetheless, we, we held out hope and we were praying that, I mean, I'm not even religious at all, but I, you know, we were all praying that, um, that maybe there was hope in my mom's case. And we decided to actually withhold the diagnosis from her at that point to just enjoy the fact that we were with her and that she was cognizant and, lucid and it was such a beautiful 24 hours that we had with my mom beautiful and, and heartbreaking at the same time but unfortunately what ended up happening was they did the you know a biopsy and they saw lesions on her liver and it was just a nightmare um and so wow yeah the dementia i think maybe later on um kept her from fully appreciating the situation, but I can't say that with any certainty. And it was just, you know, I mean, the whole thing was, was heartbreaking and that doesn't even explain it really. Yeah. That doesn't, the word heartbreaking doesn't even do how awful it was justice. But, um, needless to say, my mother, who I love more than anything, you know, on the planet has motivated my work and, um, uh, my book is dedicated to her. And so I hope it, I hope people pick it up and appreciate it. Oh, moms are the best. Damn it. I'm sorry you lost yours, Max. But again, like you said, just more fuel to help others in life and see if we can't prevent maybe some of the things that happened to her. And what a great motivation. Um, I want to get into some kind of common questions people might have or that I've been asked, and I'm sure you've been asked. But um, well, uh, let me just let's start with food for a second. I want to get into detoxing and sleeping and light and some of these other topics you cover. But Max, if we can't afford organic vegetables and organic food. What's the option there? What do we do that? I, we get that all the time. Like, Hey, I can't afford organic. So what's, what's the response there? Yeah. I'm super glad that you brought that up. You know, I've been doing a, a, a fairly deep dive into, 
um, organic versus conventional. And I will say that the issue is very complicated. Um, you know, organic food versus conventional food and with specificity, it's when you look at produce and measure the vitamin versus mineral content, the research is equivocal and certain, you know, you'll find certain vitamins in higher concentration in organic produce and you'll find certain minerals in higher concentration in conventional, um, and organic farmers are able to use pesticides. They're not synthetic pesticides and, and, you know, but the people debate whether or not the natural pesticides are any safer, um, than organic, but my, the, because you have to make a decision at checkout, my, um, the, the, the prescription that I give to people is if you can afford to buy organic produce, then buy produce organically when you're eating the skin or the peel. When we're talking about dark leafy greens, um, cruciferous vegetables, apples, berries, things like that, then I think it's worth the money, uh, to buy organic, both for the sake of the, um, the environment, you know, organic creates better, uh, soil just due to the, the organic farming practices. And also, although it, the, the benefits that these compounds may have on human health have not been fully, um, proven in scientific research, uh, organic produce is going to have higher levels of compounds like polyphenols, which are phytochemicals that we expect to have broad sweeping benefit on human health, either, um, directly or indirectly through the, um, microbiota, which can metabolize many of these polyphenols and then release, uh, compounds that have proposed benefit to us in our bloodstream. So, if you're going to eat the skin or the peel, I recommend buying organic. Organic doesn't really – it's not something that I look for when I'm buying meat, for example. So when I'm buying red meat, I'm not buying organic. I'm not looking for organic because organic could simply imply that the cow was fed organic corn. I'm <laughs> right. For, right? So I'm looking for grass-fed. Um, organic might be more beneficial when looking at chicken and things like that, uh, but – Going back to produce, the other thing is that if you can't afford organic at all or you can't um, – don't have access to it, conventional is still great. I mean, you know, like it's – you can rinse your 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 produce and, uh, you know, rinsing is, is pretty effective. Even more effective is when you soak your produce. You can soak your produce in water with some salt in it or vinegar or baking soda. I detail – um, some of these little tricks in my book where you can make your soaks even more effective is one of the reasons why you'll see um, an abundance of these like vegetable sprays with vinegar in them in the supermarket. All it is is water and vinegar. You can add vinegar to your rinse water and soak your produce for 10 to 20 minutes and it becomes very effective um, at removing synthetic pesticides. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean in general I think I think it's good to to buy – you know, organic if you can, if it's food where you're going to eat the skin or the peel. But if you can't afford it or you or you can't access it, then there's absolutely no shame or guilt to be felt in buying conventional. Um, I certainly will buy conventional avocados. I buy conventional citrus. I buy conventional uh, bananas and things like that. Um, so my goal is really to not uh, fear monger and to give um, readers sort of like the best uh, advice that that I can with the acknowledgement that, you know, uh, we live in a food system that is endlessly complex and not always, uh, as transparent as we would hope. So with that being said, um, my, 
my bias is probably uh, less in favor of these big, you know, the food industrial complex and these um, industrial agrochemicals, which have billions of dollars poured into their, you know, their their marketing and their promotion. And I, you know, I'd much rather support the organic farmer. Um, you know, in acknowledgement of the fact that organic is not perfect, but it's continually improving. Um, and many of the organic farmers that I know uh, care very much about the environment and will only use uh, even organically approved pesticides when um, absolutely necessary. What about a hack of possibly, because sometimes organic frozen vegetables can be cheaper. And, you know, sometimes if people are cooking for a huge family and they don't want stuff to go bad, right, because they're not going to use all of it. What about that as a hack? How, what do you think about frozen organic? Yeah, I think frozen and organic are great. And now, thankfully, because of the push for more transparency, you know, you can find organic foods in any of these huge supermarket chains, which, you know, I think just a couple of years ago, you might not have been able to find. But I think frozen is fantastic. Um, what a lot of people don't, uh, you know, don't haven't recognized yet is that even better than organic is wild. Um, so if you find like wild blueberries, uh, frozen in your local market, those are going to be even better than, than organic because not only are they, um, unsprayed, uh, but wild produce is basically, it's going to be, they're going to be plants that are going to have more vigor, um, because they're, 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 uh, confronted with greater stress and plants just like Animals don't want to be eaten or bothered by insects, rodents, and fungus. And so they develop these powerful compounds that um, I think are probably some of the most beneficial compounds in, in our produce. I mean, the health benefits of consuming more uh, fruits and vegetables I don't think can be solely explained by the vitamins and minerals that they contain. And I think that's the latest understanding of the benefits of eating more fruits and vegetables. It's that um, they have these broad-sweeping uh, beneficial compounds like polyphenols, uh, which include flavanols and, and, you know, anthocyanins and different compounds that, um, that actually stimulate our body's own, uh, detox pathways and defense mechanisms and, uh, increase levels of certain, uh, endogenous antioxidants that we create in our bodies. So, um, yeah, that's a great hack. Buying frozen, I think is, um, is crucial. And so just rinsing your produce. Let's talk about butter and oil. Yeah. So, um, I mean, look, should we, should we be replacing butter with oil? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I th I'm a huge fan of extra virgin olive oil. Um, so glad that Primal Kitchen makes a great extra virgin olive oil, which I've, I've tried. Um, but that's generally the oil that I'm consuming. Um, that's my, my staple, uh, what I guess you could call an exogenous fat that I'm consuming, uh, in my diet. You can cook with it at, um, mild to moderate temperatures, uh, it contains many of those polyphenols um, that I was talking about earlier. In fact, extra virgin olive oil uh, has been shown to have up to 30% more um, phenolic compounds in it than conventional because of the stress imposed on the olive when you know, you're not dousing it with synthetic pesticides. Butter, I think, is uh, can be a healthy food, but I'm not going overboard with it. I probably consume about a tablespoon of butter every single day. Um, sometimes less, uh, sometimes more. It's a, it's a very good source of, uh, vitamin A, the, the most bioavailable form of vitamin A, which is retinol. Um, so, I mean, there are vitamins and various, uh, nutrients that are to be found in butter, but I try to make recommendations that are going to do the most good for the most people. 
people and certain people are not necessarily going to metabolize an excessive amount of saturated fats very well. They're, they might see an exaggerated lipid response in the yes. body, um, in particular APOE4 carriers, uh, people who carry the APOE4 allele, um, which puts people at higher genetic risk for conditions like Alzheimer's disease. Um, so I'm not a big advocate for uh, – in favor – of or against saturated fat, I think that it's a context-specific, um, you know, it's a context-dependent uh, recommendation. Um, so, you know, to that end, if the saturated fat is contained in whole foods like grass-fed yes. beef or wild salmon, I say go at it. I place no restriction. But, you know, for butter, I think some people might, um, you know, do well with a little more butter and some people might do well with a little bit less butter. But when it comes to a fat like extra virgin olive oil or even avocado oil, I think, you know, it's as long as it's, you know, as long as you're not consuming so much that you're consuming an excessive amount of calories, I think you could basically have an extra virgin olive oil free for all and uh, your health will probably thank you for it. You know, I'm glad we're having this discussion because I just thought of, you know, so when, you know, paleo primal or keto or any of the like, hey, let's fat fuel the brain, we all know that's great. A lot of people went to mostly saturated, like a lot of coconut, right? A lot of coconut butter, and then also the MCT oil. And look, nothing wrong with any of that. However, as a hack, some people need a little energy in between something or they're in between meals. They take a little sip of MCT oil. I take a sip of olive oil or avocado oil. I just think sometimes it's a better choice. Sometimes in this space, we get too heavy on the saturated fat. And so I'm glad you're bringing this up and talking about it because I do think, again, there are some better choices or we might over favor one for the other. And I've taken a genetic test and other people have where it says, hey, you might have an issue with saturated fat. And that just sort of informed me to go, oh, yeah, you know what? I see that I'm reaching for all of those sources. Why am I not going to the avocado and the olive? And I think just because of this space with, you know, paleo when it came out, a lot of stuff was just coconut driven and very heavy with the MCT. But I'm with you. Olive oil, avocado oil, those might be the hacks. Like instead of the MCT oil in the coffee or whatever as a quick sipper because you're in between stuff and you want to be fired up, go for the olive oil or the avocado oil. It's, it just feels just as amazing. Yeah, I agree. You know, I think like the fat phobia of the past few decades was obviously not to the benefit of public health. But now that the pendulum has swung uh, away from that, it's kind of gone a little bit far in the other direction, I think, for people who are on this like sort of all out gung ho uh, pro saturated fat um, train. And, you know, I, I think it's a it's a it's a response to that fat phobia that makes sense because a lot of the oils that we've been told to um, use instead of saturated of predominantly saturated fats like butter and and ghee the the oils that we've been told to use instead like canola oil corn oil and soybean oil I mean these oils one of the things that makes them so dangerous is that they are very prone to oxidation and um, they don't hold up well chemically uh, in heat and you generate by heating them a lot of um, you know, potentially dangerous byproducts like aldehydes and heterocyclic amines and things like that. Um, and so saturated fat, I think, is great from a chemical standpoint because it's very stable. You can use it to cook at high temperatures and it doesn't mutate the way that these grain, industrial grain and seed oils do. Um, but I think it's telling when you look at, you know, when you look at food, um, Saturated fat's not bad. Like breast milk, for example, has significant uh, saturated fat, fatty acids in it, and that's arguably nature's perfect food. But then you take a cow and you feed that cow an aberrant diet, it's going to 
it's going to develop in its fat tissue a higher proportion of saturated fats. And then when you feed the cow what a cow normally is meant to eat, um, a biologically appropriate diet um, that centers around grass, it's going to actually have a smaller proportion of saturated fat and more monounsaturated fat in its in its fat. So that to me tells you something about the relative proportion of each of these fatty acids that we're meant to consume. Um, and so that's why I think in in anybody's diet, um, you're going to be better served by consuming uh, probably less saturated fat, but not no saturated fat, um, but just a diet that um, places more of a focus on MUFAs. And in fact, um, a, a liberty researcher by the name of David Sinclair, who has done the rounds recently because he's had a, he's put out a new book. He shared research. Um, I'm not sure if it was his lab that uh, put it out, but that monounsaturated fat actually activates um, the CERT1 gene pathway, which is in, it, which is implicated in longevity and healthy aging. So I'm a big fan of monounsaturated fat. It's chemically stable, unlike the polyunsaturated fats that dominate grain and seed oils. And um, and again, if it's in whole food like grass-fed beef, you know, no restriction on the saturated fat. But it's just not a, a nutrient that I'm ch chasing mm -hmm. in my day -to in my day-to-day -day diet. And I think in general, I'll just throw this out. People overdo it. You ask, like, oh, I have bulletproof coffee every morning. Go, okay, great. What does that mean to you? And then people are like, two tablespoons of butter and two tablespoons of MCT oil. And you're like, damn, hold on a minute. That's just in your cup of coffee. What are you doing? You know what I mean? So I think sometimes people misgauge these amounts and really what this means and can overdo it. And I think people run into problems there. Um, I want to move on to sleeping and light. Some really fascinating stuff here. Let's. Let's, I just want to start off with noise here. This is very interesting. You said that there's a study that found that noise can increase risk for type 2 diabetes. Let's get into that. Yeah, I mean, noise pollution. The, the, in the genius life, if I try to examine all of the many relationships that have become fractured uh, in modern life, and that includes our relationship with noise. Um, so, you know, I mean, you have to think that for a hunter-gatherer, uh, any sudden loud noise would be cause for immediate concern, signaling the potential for danger. Um, and so, you know, we live in a time now where you could just be walking the street and uh, 18-wheeler could pass by you, blow its air horn, and suddenly, without your consent, you are experiencing a fight-or-flight response, in body, which causes a number of hormonal um, and brain changes that when endured chronically, uh, can lead to major health problems. So um, noise pollution and noise annoyance, which is actually a term used in the medical literature, uh, it's not surprising to me that people who live in closer proximity to busy um, intersections um, or airports, you know, they experience uh, or work around uh, regular noise exposure, seem to have worse health. Now, correlation is not causation. Um, so there are a number of confounding variables that I could think of that might explain this. But in the studies that I cite in The Genius Life, um, many of these variables like lower socioeconomic status are actually controlled for. And what they find is that noise, chronic exposure to noise pollution causes chronic elevation of the hormone cortisol in the body, which is associated with having a bigger waist and more dangerous visceral fat in the midsection and also a smaller brain. We know that chronically elevated cortisol um, is not good for the memory center of the brain. Uh, it's not good for our immune systems. It's really not good for anything. And that's why chronic stress is such an indiscriminate killer. So I like people to be cognizant of the noise that they are routinely exposed to. Our sense of hearing is the only sense that we can't consciously uh, disengage, unfortunately. And so whether that means um, 
you know, uh, wearing earbuds to go to sleep or using a white noise machine. White noise is actually something that um, can be useful and it's a noise that we can actually get used to and can be used to drown out um, more annoying uh, and and less predictable noises. So it's actually can be beneficial. Um, or because it's blocking. like a because it's like a steady stream, right? Of something you get used to versus these jolts of stuff that's happening out there outside your window. Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like the way computers um, encode JPEG images, which are compressed images. They take uh, parts of the image that are alike and they basically save them as an artifact. That basically is what your brain does to noise that's like always. Um, or like at a constant and, and low enough level that allows you to sleep. It just kind of, your brain tunes it out. Your brain gets used to it. And to save cognitive resources, it tunes it out. And that white noise can actually hide, um, you know, the clanging of your radiator, for example, which would otherwise annoy you, spike cortisol, and negatively in, uh, impact your sleep. And, you know, we know what happens when we don't sleep as well. It's, it you know, that's not good for our health in, you know, innumerable ways. So, yeah, I want people to, I think, be a little bit more uh, critical um, and deliberate about the noise that they allow to enter their ears because, again, I mean, it could stimulate uh, a stress response without your consent, and and that is no bueno. No. Um, so the average American spends 87% of their life indoors. This is not good. This is no bueno. Let's talk about the effect of light on the brain and the body, and then we'll get into some... Uh, timekeeping situations in our own internal clocks. Yeah, for sure. So light can be either a form of medicine or it can be a carcinogen. Um, and that's an idea that I advance in the book in chapter three. Um, I think it's really important in light of the burgeoning field of research known as circadian biology to anchor your circadian rhythm first thing in the morning. And the chief time setter that your body uses and brain uses to know what time of day it is, is light. So what the research proposes is we need about a half an hour of bright natural light every morning, um, ideally before noon, to set off a timer in your body that guides everything from focus and attention and digestion and um, healthy mood uh, to when our brains and bodies begin to wind down for the evening. So good sleep actually begins the morning of. Um, what it takes is about a thousand lux, which are lux are a measure of light intensity, which can be easily achieved by standing by an open window or just going outside even on an overcast day. So bright light doesn't necessarily have to be direct sunlight, even in the shade. Um, and on an overcast day, you're getting enough light to, uh, anchor your body's circadian clock. And there's no process in the body that's not influenced by, uh, circadian rhythms. And although we have yet to fully understand how, um, each system is influenced by circadian biology, um, it seems that, I mean, everything from brain function to cardiovascular health to even the, the way in which we heal from surgeries, for example, or wounds, uh, is circadian is influenced by our circadian rhythms. Now, at the other end of the day, one of the central challenges for modern life is maintaining that circadian rhythm because, you know, we're just inundated with artificial light all day long. Um, and this includes the evening when our brains and bodies are trying to wind down. So for a hunter-gatherer, the brightest light that they would be exposed to would be a campfire or the moon or the stars in a sky, in the sky. And that light would not be able to reach the requisite 1,000 lux that can um, entrain 
the circadian clock in our brains. But unfortunately, today, the overhead lighting in a supermarket or a drugstore can easily reach a 1,000 lux. I mean, I spent a lot of, you know, many nights at uh, my brother's house binge-watching. Um, lately, I've been into The Walking Dead, which uh, got turned on to <laughs> probably, probably 10 years too late. But it's a, it's a very entertaining show. And, my and by brother, the way, it, it, if people don't even need to see the whole series, the pilot episode is, as a screenwriter myself, is one of the best pilot episode examples of a pilot uh, out there. It's, it's great. Wow. Yeah, I'll have to go and rewatch it. Um, that that first episode. I mean, the show it's a <laughs> it's not. The it's a little deepest. stressful, though, isn't it? <laughs> Does that raid your fight or very, flight? <laughs> it is a very stressful show because the amount of dumb decisions that these characters make seemingly are are endless. But I digress. Um, my brother has an eighty something inch television, and so during a daytime scene. Uh, you know, where, where the sky is exposed. I mean, the amount of light emanating from that TV can easily reach a thousand lux. One app that I use on my phone and I have no affiliation with this company is an app called Lux where you can use your phone to measure the amount of lux in your ambient environment. So I think that's useful to download, to get a sense of the ambient light in your environment. And what you'll find is that very common, uh, very commonly you're exposed to light that, um, reaches an intensity that's able to completely disrupt your body's circadian clock. And that negatively affects your sleep. That negatively affects your next day cognitive function, essentially essentially leading to us all living in a constant state of jet lag because that's actually what we're doing. We're screwing up our body's sense of um, keeping order of, of one day to the next. And, uh, and so what I like to do is I like to really be diligent about the light that I'm allowing to enter my eyes. You know, I... Um, we'll, uh, we'll often use, uh, blue light blocking glasses, which I think are, are very useful. Um, I try to minimize my use of technology at night, especially screens. And I keep all the bulbs in my house. Um, I keep them, I, um, I use mostly lamps at night that are at eye level and I make sure that the bulbs in them are not super bright and they all emit a warm orange hue. So, you know, I live in an apartment complex in LA and just walking through the complex sometimes I'll see in my periphery people's like apartments, sometimes they're lit with these very bright, like fluorescent hospital style lights. And I just oh, can't. It kills my brain to even, I can't go inside of a public library because of that <laughs> lighting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, lighting is, is, is everything. And maybe it's because I have, you know, more sensibilities that are, you know, I'm, I, I think that my brain is pretty design oriented, but um, but I definitely, I've always been sensitive to poor lighting and I just can't understand how some people, uh, choose to live under lights that, you know, you could easily be, could easily be used in a, in a hospital setting. So, um, just being conscious of the light that you allow to enter your eyes, both in the daytime as well as in the evening, I think, um, will go a long way towards making you feel better, helping you sleep better, um, and I mentioned that light could be a potential carcinogen, so let me just qualify that statement. Uh, so, you know, later on in the evening, um, as the sun begins to recede, melatonin is a hormone expressed by our pineal gland. And most people are familiar with the term melatonin. It is a hormone involved in sleep, but it's not just involved in sleep. It's a powerful antioxidant. It is a gene regulator, um, and it is involved in cancer protection. One mechanism is that uh, melatonin is actually a gatekeeper on the process known as autophagy, which is when our cells clean house. Um, it's sort of like the KonMari method for our cells when old, worn out, dysfunctional uh, proteins get sort of gobbled up, uh, tidied up, and tossed aside. And by exposing our eyes to bright light in the evening, we're basically shutting down melatonin production. And melatonin is involved in 
DNA repair. Um, and this is one of the proposed mechanisms by which it seems to be the case that night shift workers have a higher risk for certain cancers. So um, I think it becomes really, really important to make sure that you are you know, feeding your eyes uh, quality, nutritious light in the daytime and then not consuming um, excessive amounts of junk light in the latter end of the day. What time do you like to go to bed and wake up? Well, I don't know if I'm the best example. <laughs> I try to uh, walk the walk in terms of my my bed, um, you know, the time that I usually go to bed. But I, I can be a night owl. So I go to bed typically at around 1230 a night. Um, you know, sometimes I'll go to bed a little bit earlier than that. But I think what is is I'll also say that I, you know, I'm lucky in that I don't have to wake up at an ungodly hour to get to work because I work for myself. So I'm, I'm definitely privileged in that sense. Um, if I had to wake up every day at a set hour, like 6am, I would, I would definitely try to go to bed earlier, no matter what time it is that you are able to go to bed. Um, I would say, try to, um, be consistent with that. Um, and when you're tired, actually get to bed. This is, uh, something that not many people realize, but if you're tired, and you delay going to bed, you're actually, your body's going to have a stress response. You're going to start to elevate levels of cortisol, which actually gives you more energy. So this is one of the reasons why for some people when they're, you know, binge watching that show on the couch and they can't keep their eyes open, but they just try to get through the show or they delay actually not getting off the couch and getting into bed. They find that when they actually do get into bed, um, that they can't go to sleep. They're like, you know, I mean, and I've experienced this myself. I'm like, I, my, I, I just, you know, was struggling to keep my eyes open 20 minutes ago and now I have insomnia. Well, when you get tired, I think it's a, it's a crucially important tip and we don't always practice it, but I think it's, it's important to actually get into bed and go to sleep. Yeah. You can get that like second wind and then that's no good because that's that nighttime cortisol keep you up. Um, God, there's so much to cover in this book. I could talk to you for five hours, but let's jump into detoxing for a second. Um, I guess, you know, air pollution is probably one of the biggest concerns for most people. So how are there ways that we can minimize damage from that? And then I'd love to talk about some of these other aspects of detoxing. Yeah, air pollution is a major problem, whether it's ozone that we're talking about or fine particulate matter. Um, you know, it's so we don't appreciate the fact that these fine particles that you can't see um, are in the air that we breathe when we live in polluted environments. And they're able to not only enter circulation through our lungs, but some of these uh, particles are actually able to pierce the blood brain barrier and accumulate in the brain. They've done this research, unfortunately, in, in uh, very polluted parts of the world, like um, Mexico City, where they find that even younger people, um, there's evidence that there are pathologies in the brains of younger people that look like early onset Alzheimer's disease, all because of the presence of these particles that are in the air that we routinely breathe. Um, there was a great review of the environmental risk factors when it comes to the development of dementia. And it posited that 20% of case of Alzheimer's cases might be owed to um, chronic exposure to heavily polluted air. And there was a study that occurred across 48 states in the U.S. that, fi that found that high exposure to air, pollutions, air pollutants increased the risk of cogn cognitive decline in women by 81% and Alzheimer's by 92%. Mm. And there was a particular vulner vulnerability in uh, women who carry the APOE4 allele, which I already mentioned is the most well-defined Alzheimer's disease uh, genetic risk factor. So what I recommend to people is, um, to 
Well, first, to go back to food, to consume uh, a diet that is rich in fruits and vegetables and um, you know, grass-fed beef and things like that that, that promote sulfur-based amino acids that are going to help your body detoxify. Uh, so both, I think, are important, both properly raised animal products as well as produce. Um, you know, when we consume uh, a healthy diet, it minimizes the um, toxicity wrought by environmental exposures. Um, a lot of this has to do with the fact that we're consuming antioxidants in our food. Um, and there have been a number of clinical trials using antioxidants like vitamin C and E, which, you know, are found in produce, uh, and grass fed beef, um, and eggs and things like that. Um, that the, the harm wrought by exposure to air pollution is less, uh, when, when we consume a diet rich in antioxidants, uh, fish oil, there have been um, animal studies that show that fish oil can reduce inflammation wrought by exposure to air pollution. Um, taking a B complex might help. You could also get your B vitamins from food. But uh, one of the consequences of air pollution and especially exposure to fine particulate matter is that it can negatively affect heart rate variability, which is an important measure of cardiovascular health. Um, and studies have shown that by taking a B complex for four weeks, uh, you may be protected against um, uh, against um, excessive air pollution. Um, and then when it comes to ridding ourselves uh, of environmental toxins, which I talk a lot about in the book, um, you really want to practice like the three P's of healthy detox. And those are uh, pee, poop, and perspiration. So, you know, just making sure that you're consuming adequate fiber and that you're going to the bathroom regularly, crucially important, um, that you're staying hydrated because the solution to pollution is dilution. So making sure that you're peeing clear or uh, light yellow at the, at the darkest. Um, and then doing things regularly that get you to sweat. Sweating is, is majorly uh, important. We get rid of um, various heavy metals and plastic-related compounds through our sweat. And so whether it's exercise or um, sauna or even infrared sauna, uh, making sure that you're doing all three of these things on a, on a daily basis, I think is, is, is super important. Yeah. And it's, it's rare that I don't get to exercise on a day, but when I don't, I try to do the sauna, um, and just sit in there and get a good sweat going. And also just great for detox, right? From heavy metals and all, it's just going to assist you in a detox program of any kind. And I know you mentioned in your book, but we'll throw it out here too, vitamin D as well, right? As that sort of spell checker of the body. And 42%, like you said, are of the population is deficient. And you can be in the sun two hours a day like Laird Hamilton and Gabby Reese, and then they both have vitamin D deficiencies. So just because you think you get enough sun doesn't mean there's not an underlying problem. That's a very important uh, aspect to all of this too, right? Yeah. I mean, the most underappreciated problem is most people, well, I shouldn't say most, about Anywhere between 15 and 60% of people don't consume adequate magnesium in their diet, which is a, a mineral required to activate vitamin D. So you could be, you know, spending all the time necessary in the sun for your particular complexion or age. And I talk about actually in the book that people with darker complexion, people of older age, people who are overweight actually need more time in the sun um, to generate the same amount of vitamin D as a younger, leaner uh, or f more fair skinned person. Um, but even, even when doing that by spending, uh, you know, time in the sun, you actually might not be allowing your vitamin D levels to budge if you are not consuming adequate magnesium because in the liver and kidneys, magnesium is a cofactor in the enzymes required to basically activate 
the form of vitamin D that our skin creates to the active steroid form um, in the body. So uh, whether that means um, consuming more almonds, which are loaded with magnesium, or um, you can find magnesium in dark leafy greens, wherever you know you'll you see the color green in produce. Uh, that's owed to chlorophyll, and at the center of the chlorophyll molecule, you'll find magnesium. Um, dark chocolate is actually a wonderful source of magnesium. I, I even supplement with magnesium glycinate because it's so important. Uh, so, yeah, but vitamin D is crucial. It's important for um, immune function, for reducing inflammation, for healthy blood pressure, for uh, arterial flexibility, which is important. Um, it's just a, it's a crucially important uh, vitamin that actually functions like a steroid hormone in the body. Um, so I, I do actually talk quite a bit about vitamin D in, uh, in the book and, you know, vitamin D is not the only aspect of, of getting good quality sun. As I mentioned, we needed to, to anchor our body's circadian rhythms. Um, but then also the UVA rays from the sun might provide a benefit as well by boosting nitric oxide in the blood, which can increase blood flow, um, everywhere and boost blood flow to the brain. So, uh, you know, you can't really boil the benefits of regular sun exposure down to a pill, unfortunately. I wish you could. Mm -hmm. um, but by being mindful of your vitamin D levels, by getting regular, uh, you know, sun exposure, um, you're checking off all those boxes. I am standing right now this whole time we've been talking. Let's talk about how sitting for an extended period of time can literally cause your blood to drain from your brain. Yeah. That, what the hell is that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a fact that when you are sedentary for an extended period of time, blood flow to the brain uh, reduces and activity pushes new fresh blood up to the brain. It's funny, actually, being underwater um, with your head exposed squeezes your body enough so that blood flow to the brain increases um, by about 14%, if I recall correctly. Um, wow. So there are many things that we can do that increase blood flow to the brain, whether it's eating a... a a salad that um, is rich with arugula, which contains nitrates, which boosts nitric oxide, which increase blood flow to the brain, uh, or by just being less sedentary throughout the day. Um, simple movements, what they do is they cause these micro fluctuations to your blood pressure, um, which serves to, to increase brain perfusion um, or blood flow to the brain. And this is one of the reasons why I think movement is so vital. A good rule for people is if for every half an hour uh, of, of seated time, just get up and walk around for two to three minutes. In fact, that was a, um, that's a, a recommendation that um, I found in the study. It was, a, it was recently published. I forget the journal, but um, I, it's cited in, uh, in the Genius Life. Um, that for every half an hour of seated time, uh, just a two to three minute walk around the office, um, is what it takes to normalize flow, uh, blood flow to the brain. So movement is crucial. Um, you know, exercise is vital, but, uh, these non-physical, um, activities, whether it's walking or chasing your cat around the house or doing dishes or, uh, even just light stretching, um, are all actually beneficial and, and super important both for our metabolisms and for, uh, again, keeping keeping that flow of blood and nutrients and oxygen um, going to the brain, keeping that that pipeline open. So, not that it's uh, everybody do what Max does, but what is your sort of daily eating regimen? Do you subscribe to intermittent fasting? Are you kind of just in and out? Give us a day in the life of you know when you wake up to going to bed. 
Yeah, certainly. I mean, I wake up and I'll sometimes drink a cup of coffee. I took two months recently off of coffee and I felt great. It's something that I, I recommend everybody to do, um, you know, at least a week or two every, every couple of months. But I took two months off and I was feeling amazing. And then I just started to miss the ritual of waking up and, and making that brew. So these days I'm drinking a little bit of coffee. Uh, but at the minimal effective dose. So one of the one of the things that that two month uh, abstinence period did for me was it resetted my sensitivity to caffeine. So whereas before I was drinking maybe two three cups of coffee a day, now I'm drinking coffee only at the minimal effective dose. So that's like you know two scoops of ground coffee in my French press, uh, you know every morning, which is about well it's it's. I think it's less than half of what I was using before. I was using up to five scoops um, in that morning French press. So I've resensitized myself to caffeine. So now I'm drinking a little bit of it. And then um, usually what I'll do is I'll work out fasted. Now, I think that there are uh, benefits to fasted exercise. Um, and they all occur from the standpoint of metabolic health, um, you know, boosting mitochondrial health, uh, increasing fat oxidation, um, I personally feel strongest when I'm fasted. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons why, uh, and I don't have any data to back this up, but why I think a significant, um, portion of people uh, will sometimes skip on going to the gym is because they're feeling, um, that sort of post meal fatigue that many of us experience, you know, sort of midday. But first thing in the morning on a, uh, when I'm fasted, I've got my cortisol levels elevated, you know, because, diurnally, there's that cortisol rhythm. That means that your cortisol levels are going to be the highest they're going to be in the morning. Um, and I also have neurotransmitters that are working in my favor to help me procure food. And so I find that that milieu, um, leads to, uh, a decent amount of energy, um, in the gym. Now, ultimately, whatever time of day you can get to the gym is going to be beneficial. So you don't have to do what I do in that regard, but I just find that it works for me. Um, and then usually after that, I'm going to get a meal. I like to eat a big salad every single day. Um, so sometimes I'll get that. I'll load it up with dark leafy greens and extra virgin olive oil and a, and a big hefty source of protein, whether it's wild salmon or grass-fed beef or even, uh, you know, some chicken. Other times I'll just go for roasted meat and, um, and, and cooked veggies. Um, but what I'm doing at every meal is I'm prioritizing protein. I think that protein is a very powerful tool uh, I mean, the fitness community is well aware of the benefits of protein, but something that I um, put forth in my book for a more general audience is that protein is something that um, we love to hate on. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, we already eat too much protein. But actually, I think that, you know, when you look statistically at, at how many people are struggling with um, overweight or sarcopenia at the, uh, you know, older end of the age spectrum, I think protein is a crucially important nutrient to both satiate our appetites and to preserve um, or even build lean mass. So I prioritize protein at every single meal as well as vegetables, which contain fiber and all those important phytonutrients that I mentioned earlier that are going to help me uh, detox, be good for my digestion, etc. Um, I try not to snack uh, midday because at each meal I'm eating to, to fullness, you know, I'm, I'm satiating my appetite. I don't count calories or moderate my portions because I'm building my diet based around whole foods, which are going to regulate my appetite naturally. But if I do snack, um, you know, I'll reach for higher protein options. So whether it's a low sugar beef jerky, um, or some, uh, you know, 
pasture raised pork rinds or even, you know, the occasional fruit. I'm a huge fan of Honeycrisp apples, so I'm not dogmatic about, uh, you know, avoiding fruit. I'll have like a fruit or two a day, um, whole fruit, uh, tops, but you know, uh, those are great snacks for me. Um, and then, uh, later on in the evening, you know, after all the work is done, um, maybe I'll hit the sauna if I have access to one and I'll, you know, eat again. And I, I kind of rinse and repeat, eat the, you know, I eat the same kinds of foods, uh, to break my fast as I do at dinner. So a big, you know, portion of some kind of protein, um, copious veggies and, uh, and yeah, that's pretty much it. And then, you know, winding down, I'm, I'm being a little bit more deliberate about the light that I allow to enter my eyes. I'm, you know, checking my social media less. Uh, I'm really building relaxation into my, into my routine. And, um, and yeah, I mean, you know, and the idea is not to be perfect. It's to just make progress and to make incremental steps. Um, you know, that's, I think, really where you're going to see the biggest wins. And I try not to eat too late at night. So my dinner, I try to, you know, have dinner at around 7 p.m., 8 p.m., the latest. Uh, 8 p.m. is actually probably a little bit late. It's more like 7, 6.37. Um, and then from 10 to or from 9 to whenever I go to sleep, that's about a three to four-hour window. Uh, I'm trying not to eat anything. I might, I might drink some herbal tea or some water. Um, but I'm, you know, letting the body rest. I'm not trying to perturb what my body wants to do, um, later on, later on in the day, which is to wind down and go to sleep. The genius life just has so many different hacks and ways to affect our daily routines, right? Sleeping, detoxing, and also even, I'm going to get to this, but even how to manage social media addiction. I mean, you've got it all. It's such a great book. Um, tell us where can we find more about you and you also have a podcast as well. So where do we go to find out all about you and to gain the knowledge that you have from your books? Yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely pick up the genius life, which is just packed with actionable tips. Um, it's a 360 degree lifestyle guide, uh, to feeling great, having energy, uh, shifting your body composition to a more positive state. Um, I even talk about, uh, common skin conditions and their relation to what you eat. Um, light exposure, our relationship with nature, things like that. It's really, I'm super proud of the book. So you can go to geniuslifebook.com to pre-order or order. And we've got some great bonuses that we're uh, giving out for free for people who pre-order. And um, then you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Max Lugavere, and that is L-U-G-A-V-E-R-E. I'm very active over there. And then finally, I have a podcast that is also called The Genius Life. So if you dig podcasts, which I'm assuming you do if you're listening to this one, uh, come over and hit that subscribe button. Excellent. Well, we will put everything to connect with you and your books directly into the show notes. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with? Noel, thank you so much for your time. And this was really fun. I, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I wrote this book during a, a an insane time in my life, and I, I hope it resonates with people. Um, you know, these are all tips that I offer that are backed by science, but trench tested. Um, and so, yeah, I hope I hope it resonates with people, and I hope ultimately, I mean, what I really hope is that it helps people. So, no, your, your books are great. Highly recommend. And again, thank you so much for joining us, and to everyone else, we will see you next week. Hey, Primal Blueprint listeners, no dairy in your life? 
No problem. Primal Kitchen has you covered because our no-dairy vodka sauce is made with avocado oil and organic cashew butter so you can ditch the dairy and keep the decadent taste you love. Made without gluten, soy, canola oil, or artificial ingredients, this vegan plant-based sauce is paleo certified. Visit us at primalkitchen.com for more real food options from dairy-free Alfredo sauce to tomato basil marinara and a whole host of other delicious products the entire family will love. Hi folks, Mark Sisson here. If you found your way to the primal path and want to help others live primally too, then visit primalhealthcoach.com to learn how you can join our mission to help 100 million people reclaim their health and how you can turn your passion for wellness into a profitable health coaching career that you love. The world needs health coaches. The world needs you. So visit primalhealthcoach.com today to learn more.